Welcome to Politics in the North, where a couple of recovering policy bonks get together to discuss politics. Hello and welcome to Politics in the North. So today we are joined again by Atul, Victoria, Eddie, Alex, and Bushra. Hello. How's everyone doing? Hello. Hello. Hi everyone. Doing pretty good. So this week we figured a good prompt would be focusing on the issues related to food security. COVID has naturally impacted many of the supply chains, particularly in the Canadian context. Many of the biggest COVID outbreaks are taking place in the food and agriculture business. The largest North American COVID outbreak now is currently in Alberta, attributed to one particular meat processing plant. And likewise in the United States, 15 other meat processing plants have active outbreaks so naturally, these are all a bit of a jury thing, but I figured a good way to start off the segment would be a bit of a game of the price is right. So we all go to the grocery stores. We have all been living through this situation. I am going to give each of you the guess to choose what is the one product that has increased the most in price and what has saw the biggest decrease in pricing since the beginning of this crisis. I should get my receipt. <laughs> I guess is this only edibles? Edibles, correct. <laughs> food related, food related. All right, so maybe flour has seen a huge increase in price. I know there's like some massive shortages around that. Uh, a decrease in price. Um, I don't know. Rice? I'm not sure. I'm going to agree with you in terms of flour decrease. Would it be, I want to say milk and I don't know why. I just know there was a lot of dumping going on. So I don't know if maybe that because of the oversupply, but that those are my two guesses. Yeah, my guess, my guess for the price decrease would also be milk. Um, I think for increase, I would go either with flour or fresh produce. Yeah, I guess my guess would also be flour or yeast in terms of a price increase. And then for a decrease, I would say milk or potatoes. I've been hearing that we have an oversupply of potatoes in Canada. So the funny thing enough is that potatoes have been going up in pricing, particularly potatoes of the frozen variety. So mm. French fries have gone up a whopping 21% since March 2019. What? Is that a McDonald's pump wow. with a Whopper? <laughs> wow. And then on the flip side, milk has gone down by 6%. Mm. The, the biggest non-food drop naturally has been gas, but that's a whole other, other situation <laughs> altogether. But yeah, it's been interesting to see how pricing has kind of impacted throughout this crisis. But I'd curious to get your perspectives in terms of just understanding why are meat plants being impacted so heavily out of all the things. Each week, I keep on hearing new news about that particular segment of the agriculture business being heavily impacted by COVID. So in terms of meat plants, I know that based on the region or the part of the world you're living in, you're seeing variations. So I know in the United States, you have a few different things going on. The first one would be there are a lot of meat plant workers that have been getting sick. And so that's sort of caused bottlenecks in the supply chain just because there's not enough hands there processing the meat. On top of that, there's been operational disruptions with Corona. And one of the other sort of big things they've now been doing is culling because with sort of operations decreasing and the supply chain having glut, the costs for 
upkeep of these animals. I heard something like, you know, there were an excess of a million pigs or over in the industry right now, and they just don't have the resources or the capital to sustain such large uh, amounts of, you know, chicken, pork, and other meats. And so uh, it's a combination of different factors going on. And then, of course, you can talk about the supply chain as well in terms of transport, both locally within the nation and then internationally as well. So there are a few different factors that are coming together on this one. Yeah, and one of the issues related specifically to workers getting sick, especially in meat processing plants, is because, and this is something that's actually been talked about for a really long time in the U.S., is the worker safety in these plants and how close people are actually having to work together. So I was actually reading a Vox article about the chicken processing plants in the U.S., and this journalist was explaining that, you know, we say people are standing shoulder to shoulder. They're literally standing shoulder to shoulder. Like, I'm touching the person next to me my entire workday in these processing plants. And so it makes it almost impossible without retrofitting the entire plant for workers to be six feet apart, you know, as we as we need them to be. And because a lot of the symptoms of COVID-19 don't show up for days, or you may never show symptoms, but you're a carrier, even the things that they're doing to try to test people and looking at their temperature and things like that, like it's not enough to prevent these outbreaks from happening. So I think one of the biggest things is how do we keep people safe? Because they're a very integral link in the chain in terms of supply chain management and all these different things, especially with animal processing and meat processing. So I think that's like a really, really big issue that I've yet to really see anyone solve at this point. I think it's also important to note that once you do have a disruption in the chain, it's very hard to, especially with the the systemic effects of the pandemic, to renegotiate contracts or renegotiate agreements or partnerships with other sources or customers. So that's sort of one part that takes a pretty big bashing as well. Yeah, and I would tend to agree with Victoria. I think um, the workers' rights issue is a big one. And I would argue that it's actually not just with meat factories, but across the food supply chain. But I think in particular with meat factories, because you're in a closed environment, it makes it much more difficult. And then the individuals who are working in these factories or who are growing our foods or harvesting food tend to be the most marginalized in our communities. So they're underpaid. In some contexts, they may lack citizenship status, which affords them certain rights or guarantees of safety. And so I think that needs to be really addressed if we're going to look at improving the safety of these workers and therefore the safety of the the supply chain as well. From what I understand, I believe that the food supply chains and generally the global food industry has been more resilient this time around than the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And I know during that particular event, you had, you know, the price of rice and wheat go up pretty exponentially, especially because there were sourcing issues coming from Russia and a few other countries that are pretty heavy on a few key crops and commodities. But I think another thing to note is also we've learned a lot of lessons since the last financial crisis. Uh, On average, I think prices went up for food produce went up 116% uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of that particular crisis, if I remember correctly. But moreover, since that time, when it comes to inventory, companies and restaurants and grocers, they've increased the the life of their inventory. Some have gone from 30 to 90 days. Some have gone from one month to three months. So they have sort of uh, stored food that runs in excess. And this applies for meats as well. They've sort of increased their capacity to have freezing sort of technologies for their meat and other food products as well. Yeah, I think something that will be interesting is to see how certain climate crises will also coincide with this pandemic and impact the price of food. So even before we had the pandemic like really hit many different places around the world, there was in the Canadian context, at least locally, 
35% approximately increase in the price of produce from last year to early 2020. And so that was already hitting some of the food banks, for example, really hard because the ones that were providing fresh produce to the people who needed it were now trying to get creative with being able to still provide those food boxes, for example, at an affordable price with nutrient density while still managing the, the fact that the prices were increasing. So I think that's something that will be particularly interesting to look at and that we should be mindful of because various places around the world will be entering, for example, hurricane season, and that will also be impacting those supply chains. Yeah, so I think it's it's very interesting. We've talked a, bit, a lot about this as a supply side issue, but really, in a lot of ways, so far at least, it's been more of a demand shock with people really changing the way that they've gone shopping. People who might not cook at home or, or make their own food so often having to do that now and people stockpiling different kinds of goods at various points throughout this crisis. I think we've gone from toilet paper to flour to, depending where you are, ice cream or meat. So I think people have completely changed the way they've shopped, and that poses challenges to the normal just-in-time model that a lot of especially large grocers use to keep themselves stocked. The supply chains themselves issues with meat packaging plants notwithstanding have actually held up pretty well. I think another thing to keep in mind is that this time around is different than 2008-09, in part because that year you saw major drought in large parts of the world. I think Otto earlier was talking about wheat, and that's largely what caused that price shock. And this time, fortunately, we don't have that so far, although as Busher was saying, climate change-related issues can affect that going forward. We could see more problems as we get toward harvesting season in North America, planting season first, and then especially with harvesting season if we're unable to get enough hands actually out picking fresh vegetables and fruits in particular that we rely on. So that could be a major issue. But so far, I think it's been more, if anything, a demand side problem. Yeah, the harvesting component, I think, is going to be, it's a ticking time bomb in the sense that Canada is very much reliant on foreign labor for a lot of the harvesting components of our agriculture business. And with immigration kind of being on hold in this current climate, I'm struggling to figure out how we're going to get the labor needed to actually keep things going. Yeah, that's a really big issue. And it goes beyond just this particular crisis, right? Like those are workers that have been mistreated. And our friend Molly Thomas actually did a fabulous story talking about how temporary foreign workers get hurt while they're doing this job. And then they're basically sent back home with no healthcare, with no extra money to help them get over the, whatever issue they had medically. And then they can't feed their families, which is the whole reason why they come over here in the first place. So that's a really big issue that I think needs to be looked at outside of this crisis as well, which all of this does, right? Like this all kind of exposes flaws within the system that people have sort of been talking about for a really long time, but we haven't really had the push needed to look at these things. Um, and I know one of the big issues in the U.S. with the system right now is that, you know, the quote unquote big ag, as everyone calls it, it's quite overwhelming how just the amount of companies, the little amount of companies that really control the food supply within the United States, especially when it comes to meat. And my family lives in a very rural part of Virginia. And it was always really shocking to me, the fact that they live in an area that has a lot of agriculture, but the food that you get at the grocery store is terrible. It's very, very bad. Like the produce is always kind of on its last leg. It's almost 
almost rotten. The meat isn't really good quality. So it's really interesting to see how rural communities are often the ones who suffer the most from the way the system works in the United States. I can't, I don't know for sure if it's the same way in Canada, but there are definitely issues within the system. And it goes to what you're talking about with our reliance on migrant workers to come in and do this really backbreaking work so that we can have food. And then we don't treat them well. They don't have healthcare. Uh, they get paid really low. So I think that's all things that we need to be looking at, but I'm not sure if people have the capacity to do it now or how we sort of get the political will for people to look at it, but it's definitely an issue that's not going to go away, right? And I think those are actually two very important points that we've talked about. We've touched on migration and big ag. And with regards to migration, we see that this is an issue that is popping up across sort of the quote-unquote Western world, because you're seeing a lot of these problems in Europe as well, right? With Eastern European migrant workers who are struggling to get into parts of the sort of Nordic states, they're starting to get into Germany when it comes to picking berries and other agricultural activities. And we're already seeing issues over there where producers are talking about having to just throw away crops because they don't have the storage capacity to deal with all these sort of all the ripening crops that are happening over there. So that's that's one thing. It's not just in North America. It's in other, other parts of the world as well. And I think with regards to Big Ag, I thought that, that was a really good point. If I remember correctly, I think um, when it comes to the United States, the meat industry is right now controlled by three large agricultural corporations. There's very little competition and this sort of causes problems. I mean, COVID-19 as a separate issue, but even during normal times when the supply chain is functioning properly. This causes huge problems with the re regulatory quality of the food that is being produced, the processes that are used to clean, cut, and you know export the food to customers and across the world. And, and we know that there are questions around and notoriety around the quality of meat that the United States exports. I mean, dare I talk about chlorinated chicken and, and uh, under the British context. So I think this will undoubtedly bring up important questions about the role of food monopolies, both during COVID-19, where one or two big players start underperforming or are not able to meet the challenge because there's just absolutely zero capacity for anyone else to rise up. It causes some serious issues down the road. I think it is a systemic issue. And when it comes to the quality of food, it's a bit ironic that in order to increase the amount that people are producing, they're using unsustainable agricultural practices, which deplete nutrients from the soil, for example, and then impact the type of produce that you're growing. And then it really does like the opposite, maybe of what you're trying to do, unless your goal is just to pump out as much produce as possible to maximize profits, but it's not actually nutrient dense. So you would need more of that in order to actually get your daily allotment of nutrients that's required. And so I think that's part of the challenge when you look at some of these places that are food deserts that eat, despite growing the food, because there's such poor quality of what's being grown and the depletion of the soil nutrients, and then all of the other environmental factors come into play in really impacting the different aspects of the, the supply chain or the quality of the food that's being produced, and then also our health, right? So when we're talking about this pandemic, there's been such a huge focus on physical health, but not necessarily taking into account the environmental factors, which include food as well, because things that are grown naturally or animals that we're consuming are also in the natural environment. So if that environment is polluted or there's toxins in it, then we end up consuming those because we're part of that chain in the system. One of the questions I wanted to bring up is when we talked a lot about migrant workers and we talked about sustainable agricultural practices. We talked about this food supply chain, but we keep looking at it from a Western lens, from our perception here in Canada. What about the rest of the world? I mean, we t what, what does this mean for 
Africa? What does this mean for parts of Asia? What does this mean for Southeast Asia, some parts of Europe? We see that there's other important issues happening in, in those areas as well with regards to these very same food chains. I would reckon as in, I think you're correct, Russell. I think a lot of the perspective is based on, like, say, a Western perspective. And I think in East Africa particularly, there's been an issue with locusts that have been impacting several of the crop yields there. And that's also going to impact the food and supply chain. But then also you would have the droughts and the floods that do come in seasonally. However, with the lack of a focus or a strategy, speaking to a lot of like say folks back in Uganda, for example, I think without a an affluent, say, or robust agricultural plan in order to best support the population in times like this, as you would have supply management at, in Canada or the U.S., there isn't that kind of advanced system in place. And a lot of times you have countries that have to import from other nations, otherwise because they're not growing those crops or they stop growing those crops because of particular government policies in place. And that is something that hasn't been looked at and it's not sustainable long term. And I think following this pandemic, I think you have not only looking at the health systems, but then looking at more of the agriculture systems to ensure that nations are able to support and to sustain their own populations down the line. And you have, there's going to be a disparity between those that say, for example, are based on the coast or have a significant amount of infrastructure. I'm talking to Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, where you have access to the coast and you have trade or ports of trade. But those countries that are landlocked interior of, say, the African continent, that's where you may have more challenges. And that's where there needs to be more of a strategic approach to agriculture and supply management in those cases. And just to add quickly to what you said, Eddie, and, and I think Africa is a very important geographical, I mean, the, the continent as a whole is a very important factor in looking at Corona. And I think the UN said by the end of the year, you'll have 200, at least 250 million more people who will be living under conditions of starvation than would have been the case without Corona. I think it is easy in some ways to overstate the problems that we have in the systems generally. Yes, there are some issues with with quality, but generally, the number of cases you have of really serious uh, food safety issues in the US or Canada or Europe are pretty small overall. Even if you have cases between chlorinated chicken in the US and Europe, those are usually more due to pseudo protectionist measures than they are to genuine food safety concerns. So I think it's important not to throw out too much of that system because of what we're seeing with COVID. Certainly, when you're talking about rights for migrant workers. There are some issues there, which I think governments will need to revisit going forward. But something which is immensely important with the way our agricultural system works is that it's managed to lower costs for food dramatically for consumers in the last half century. And I think especially now when incomes are pinched, that's something which is very, very important. And when we talk about having countries sustain themselves agriculturally more, bringing in supply management, what that effectively means is that consumers are going to have to be ready to pay in some cases, a lot more for certain goods. Uh, certainly, if you compare what a carton of milk costs in Canada to what it costs in the United States, it's over a dollar different in a lot of cases. And that makes a difference, especially for lower income families. And the reason for that is that we have a supply management system that promotes growing dairy cattle and 
places where, frankly, it's fundamentally uneconomical and doesn't make sense to grow them. So we need to be really, really careful when talking about flaws, perceived flaws in the system due to COVID, that we don't retreat into this idea of autarky being a viable option for agricultural policy going forward, because it really does raise some very problematic issues for consumers. I would caution against maybe measuring the effectiveness or the health of the food supply chain by looking at the extreme cases. And by extreme cases, I mean, if you have chlorinated chicken, if you have mad cow disease, I think the strength of the food supply chain actually relies heavily on the quality of the food and the quality of the food in terms of its nutrient value. And within that supply chain, I think one of the most effective responses has been through community gardens, for example, who are really leading the charge and who are identified in various jurisdictions. So whether it's in the North American context or around the world, because community gardens actually have their roots in indigenous communities, for example, around the world, and how effective that has been in providing affordable and accessible food to local communities and also cutting the carbon footprint of the food that's being supplied throughout the chain. So I think it's really important to look at those types of models as well and not discounting the existing model that we have because yes, we do have a high demand of food and there is an affordability issue, but I think the affordability issue is a systemic one in that just because people cannot afford quality food does not mean that we have to provide them with poor quality food that is more economical to sell to them instead of addressing the fact that they're being underpaid, for example. So I think having quality jobs, guarantees of workers' rights, will also then benefit people and being able to access quality food as well throughout the food system. Yeah, I have two points. My first one is that quality is really important. I remember I lived and worked in Newark, New Jersey for a year with, and I was working at a school. And we were basically, even though we were living and working in this relatively huge city. We were in a food desert. Like the closest grocery store was about 20 minutes by bus. So it was really difficult for people to get there if they couldn't afford a bus ticket or if they didn't have a car. So where most people got their food was actually from the local convenience store. And those stores typically didn't have fresh produce or meat or things like that. It was all packaged foods. So a lot of my students were eating for breakfast like Doritos. And most of the food that they got was from schools, which is another point that we could probably do a whole podcast on in that sense is a lot of kids are missing out on pretty quality food right now that they don't get at home. The other point I was going to make, which is going back to kind of a tools question about how does this impact other countries? And I know that a lot of Middle Eastern countries, especially Gulf countries, import almost all of their food. And there has been a lot of controversy with them actually paying for land in other countries, specifically in Africa, to grow food there and then importing all of it into their country. So I think they're especially going to probably get hit pretty hard because of issues in India and China, where a lot of their food also comes from as well. So I'm really curious to see how those countries deal with the impact that this is going to have on not only the cost of food, but just on the the system itself and how they're used to supplying food for their own people. All of these have been amazing points and it's really ramming home that fact that big agriculture and the way that it's currently structured isn't necessarily well positioned to deal with a lot of these resiliency questions that we'll likely be facing as climate change makes these issues even more problematic than they currently are in the current crisis. On a slightly lighter note, I think we'll end this podcast on asking everyone, how has your dining habits changed since the post-COVID world? 
I have wanted to do the whole sort of support your restaurants. I know there's kind of that everyone should do pick up or take away at least once a week, but I've definitely found myself cooking so much more than I used to cook and sort of running out of new things that I want to cook. So we're constantly having to look up like new recipes to try to make different things. But I've also become a lot more aware of where my food is coming from. Like I found myself sort of looking at the packages and seeing where it's coming from and thinking about these issues a lot more than I can honestly say I ever have before this. I do think my relationship with the food that I'm eating has changed a little bit and that I want to be more conscious about where I source my food and if it's organic if it's actually organic not just sort of you know when they label things organic so I think for me it's it's kind of created a better relationship that I've had with food now I'd have to uh, second what Victoria said I certainly think that my relationship with food has improved tremendously after or since we've started working or functioning from home definitely cooking more I still order out more than once a week but uh, I cook at least one to two meals a day I'm, I'm relying a lot more on a specific like kind of schedule towards how I eat. I have two big meals in a day and then little snacks here and there, like healthy snacks, like carrots and hummus and that kind of stuff. So saving food, eating better and organizing my day around food actually more than I would if I was at work weirdly. I think on my end, I was cooking pre-pandemic, but I think cooking a lot more. I think at the beginning of the year, I had like a New Year's resolution where I'd be cooking twice as much as I used to, different meals every week. And I got a cookbook for that and it's been helping during this pandemic. But I think it's been like adding to Victoria and Atul's point, I think being able to better understand where your food is coming from, right? Pre-pandemic, I'll just run into a grocery store and say, I just need this, I need this, I need that, and then I'm out. But now just taking your time to understand what is it that you want to eat this time? You don't have to eat everything but you can just like really portion it out and also like understanding the situation that's happening in most other areas I think definitely I think it's been uh, an eye-opener yeah for my part I cooked most of my food before this started and I'm still doing that now I think I've ordered in food maybe four times I think in the last 10 weeks what I have done differently, mostly as a result of trying to avoid going into grocery stores where you might come into contact with a lot of people, I've just started planning out all my meals for two to three weeks ahead of time and then buying everything for those all at once. And I have to say, it really sucks carrying all that home, but it's worked very well. And I think I'm going to just keep doing that after this is over. It does make you plan ahead a lot better. And uh, if you're looking for new recipes, the New York Times uh, cooking site has been an absolute godsend through this. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Amen. Yeah, I think for myself, I've always had a close relationship to food. It's very central to my culture. But what's been particularly interesting for me is that it's also Ramadan right now. And so I'm fasting and that already cuts down on the amount of meals that I'll have in a day. But I'm just generally more mindful of what I'm eating. And I've seen a reduction in my consumption of meat for sure. And even dairy products. Um, I wasn't particularly fond of dairy minus cheese. (laughs) So I don't think that was a huge jump for me. But I think it, it definitely helped push me towards that direction. For me, the biggest change has been I've cut down sugar almost completely. Before, I, I used sugar as kind of a crutch during the workday to kind of give me that boost at the, the 1 p.m. kind of mark where you really start feeling it. But now being at home, uh, I just have other ways to, to give myself that serotonin boost. And I think on that note, we will end this podcast.